All right. So I am doing this to uh, chat a little bit about J.D. Vance uh, and this article that I just wrote about him for the Daily Beast called J.D. Vance's Unbelievably Phony Populism. Uh, I do want to apologize uh, at the out. As I mentioned in the description, I've been traveling this week and I cannot for the life of me find the stupid connector for uh, my headset to hook it up to my iPhone. Um, which means I'm just, you know, talking into this as if it were a phone. So uh, if the audio quality is not as good because of that, my apologies. Also, I'm going to have to be doing the thing that I've uh, done a few times in the past under similar circumstances where uh, I just sort of awkwardly stop talking, you know, for a second once every few minutes so I could check to see if anybody has called in. You know, if I have my headset on, I could just hold up the phone and uh, as I talk uh, into the headset and see the, the queue of callers. So um, in any case, uh, bear with me on both of those, but this was really interesting to, uh, to research. And before I talk about the article itself and what I say about Vance and then open it up to anybody who's in the queue who might want to call in to share their own thoughts. Um, I just wanted to uh, to say something about the process of uh, researching it, which was made really, really easy by the Vance campaign itself. Uh, so some people might be familiar with what I'm about to talk about. Covered in Politico and other places, but uh, for anybody who has not run across populist conservative absurd of Vance's campaign is one Peter Thiel, uh, who of course is a uh, nutcase libertarian Silicon Valley billionaire, um, and you know, or at least he always has been a libertarian. Uh, you, know, you can question whether you know he's changed his views in some dramatic way, which you know, which I'll get into. Uh, but uh, but Teal poured uh, what's apparently like a really unprecedented amount of money into Vance's. Senate campaign in Ohio. Uh, it was $15 million, which, you know, for a single Senate primary campaign uh, is is just a loopy amount of money. Uh, and, and it is also particularly funny, I have to say, again, given the whole populist thing, the, you know, standing up to the ordinary people against the elites, that not only was the campaign, you know, like primarily uh, funded by this one billionaire, you know, that and other donors, of course, but I mean, like, you know, he was, he was really the, uh, the patron. Uh, but, you know, if you read uh, the Politico story about this, see, like, really, the, the strategy all along was to, you know, okay, keep the campaign afloat and, uh, and, but like, not even so much to directly impress Ohio Republicans as to impress Donald Trump. 
Uh, so that will be the second billionaire in the story. Uh, so, uh, so that Trump would endorse him and, you know, that, that endorsement would, would carry a lot of weight, uh, you know, with Ohio Republicans, which of course did, uh, and that would, you know, bring him across the finish line if he was already a, a contender, uh, at that point. Okay. So when Teal is pouring all this money into the campaign, more precisely, we should say what he's doing is he's pouring it into Vance's super PAC, um, you know, because of course, you know, in the post, you know, Citizens United era, you, know, you can spend as much money as uh, as you want on this, uh, on uh, on the super PAC and the, you know, like the the sort of uh, goofy pretense is that the super PAC can't coordinate with the campaign, right? So that's what that's the that's the constitutional argument. See this. Is- they're just, you know, they're just doing speech on behalf of the candidate, you know, but it's not part of the candidate's campaign. And this tends to be a bad joke at the best of times, but, you know, there are a few ways in which this is, um, you know, this is a little bit enforced. Uh, And, and the, the teal was so part of pulling the candidates' vulnerabilities. Uh, and they didn't want to bother with any of that. The campaign itself was like pretty bare bones initially. <laughs> So they basically summoned, uh, you know, without any of those pesky fi- campaign finance uh, law limitations into doing all these activities. And, you know, the campaign itself didn't worry about it. They could just reap the results. But then you say, OK, but how are they going to reap the results? Like, how does this work? Uh, because after all, um, you know, they can't the super PAC can't just like email the campaign. Oh, here's this new poll that we found. Uh, you know, here's this new poll that we commissioned, you know, uh, you know, check out lines two, three, and four, especially, uh, you know, and adjust your strategy accordingly, because if they did that, that would like actually get them into legal trouble, right? That would violate even the sort of bad joke of campaign laws that exist right now. So instead of doing that, um, what they did is they set up this, this website. It was like this, you know, like medium site kind of deal. And they were trying very hard to fly under the radar and not make it something that, you know, would like jump out at anybody doing searches. Uh, But it was technically public. So they're not, um, you know, they're not doing illegal coordination. They're just, they're just dumping this information onto the people's internet for any, any people who want to see it. Uh, (laughs) And, but the intended audience was just the Vance campaign. I assume there was a little bit of illegal coordination to be like, hey, hey guys, here's the link. But, you know, you could the, that's a very easy thing to do as a one-time deal. You, know, you don't have to have this big paper trail of ongoing communication. And then uh, that link, uh, what it gives you is this Dropbox folder of all of this research. You know, lots of polling, et cetera, et cetera. 
And one of the things in the Trump box is a 175-page analysis of all of J.D. Vance's vulnerabilities that you know the other campaigns might try to exploit. Now, as a matter of fact, one of the other Republican primary campaigns did find this and use it. Uh, you know, wasn't enough. You know, for uh, for them to beat him in the primary. Um, but uh, I have to say, if you're doing what I was doing uh, this week, which was writing an article about J.D. Vance and sort of exposing the uh, absurd gap between his populist rhetoric and his actual policy positions, man, this is a useful thing to have because it makes it makes researching this article just a breeze. You know, there's a nice, it's conveniently laid out, nice table of contents. You know, it's like, oh, I wonder if he said anything about Medicare for all. Oh, oh. I, I see it here in the table of contents, page 97 of this 175-page document, and what uh, page uh, page 97 uh, takes you to is this uh, is this fairly jaw-dropping exchange that Vance had with Tucker Carlson in 2019. Now, back it up a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the you know the story I kind of trace in the article is. Uh, Vance's transition from his 2016, 2017 kind of persona, uh, when he was the author of uh, of Hillbilly Elegy, which, as as Nathan uh, Nathan Robinson put it in uh, Current Affairs, I quote this line in the article: "Might as well have been called How I Made It to Yale, even though my family are drug addicted, violent wastrels who should pull themselves up by their bootstraps." Um, you know, so he was the author of that book. Uh, and he, you know, and he, and he was, he generally speaking, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate this. I think there were hints of the sort of rhetorical posture he'd take later. He was trying to have it both ways a little bit even back then. But, you know, he was definitely a never-Trumper, right? You know, in this sort of way that, like, you know, Mitt Romney was back then. Uh, I think he voted or said he voted for Evan, um, currently one of the 10 people who did. Uh, and. Trump's outrage from immoral to absurd, uh, and uh, um, yeah, I mean this was his rhetorical posture back. The strategy that he and Peter Thiel uh, had for him winning this primary result, you know, revolves around you know snagging Trump right wing populists. Uh, when I was getting ready to uh, debate uh, Charlie Kirk last year, um, you know, while I was researching that, you know, I, I watched a little bit. I watched it with Kenzo Shibata on my YouTube channel, uh, give them an argument. Uh, I watched a little bit of this uh, of this interview that, that Kirk did with Vance. Um, and, um, you know, this was like early 2021 uh, where Kirk, like actually uses the phrases like he's like look 
you know, we're not like these old uh, Ronald Reagan, William F. Buckley kinds of conservatives, right? You know, we're this new kind of populist conservative. And, you know, and of course, Vance is all, all over that. I mean, that is how he wants to uh, to describe himself. Uh, and, and certainly by 2019, you know, he was like well on his way there. I mean, that's why he was on Tucker Carlson in the first place. And if you, if you listen to this dialogue, you can really see... Um, you know, you can really see the whole, you know, the whole transition uh, that's, you know, you can see both um, him like slathering this layer of populist rhetoric over everything. And you could also see uh, why there's this very, very darkly funny disconnect uh, between that populist rhetoric and the actual policy substance underlying it. So I'm going to read the quote in just a second. All right. Um, Vance, well, at a big level, the Democratic Party increasingly represents professional class elites. Carlson, yes. I like that Carlson here is just kind of like one of those characters in Plato's dialogues, you know. Socrates, you know, goodness, justice, blah, blah, blah. Alcibiades, quite so, Socrates. All right. Uh, Carlson, yes. Vance, and Republicans represent middle and working class wage earners in the middle of the country. <laughs> All right. Keep that claim in mind. Uh, now I will say, I think Democratic leaders kind of get this. If you look at the big policy proposals from the 2020 Democratic candidates, um, universal child care, debt-free college, even Medicare for All, which is framed as a lurch to the left, but is really just a big handout to doctors, physicians, pharmaceutical companies, and hospitals. So that's uh, that's Vance's claim that uh, Medicare for all is a um, is actually uh, is actually bad from a populist point of view because it's a handout to these powerful groups, uh, doctors, physicians. Apparently, those are two different groups: the doctors and the physicians, pharmaceutical companies, and uh, hospitals. Now, if you know anything about anything you know that the hospitals and the pharmaceutical companies are implacably opposed to Medicare for all. Um, and, you know, the doctors and the physicians are a bit more split on it. Um, you know, in, in some polls, you know, you do have almost half of them who are okay with it. But, um, you know, poll I was looking at when I was researching this, you know, 59% of doctors said they were worried that physician compensation would be lower under Medicare for all, which, you know, is a fair worry because, you know, doctors in the U.S. are paid more than doctors in comparable first world countries uh, that uh, that have some form of universal public health care. Uh, now, my understanding is that, you know, once you balance that against the, uh, the you know, the student loan issue and the uh, uh, and um and like everything that goes along with, you know, with insurance and all that, then it's, it's, it actually becomes a little unclear whether they're, you know, whether like a, a standard like GP in Canada really has a worse deal than, uh, than his counterpart of the United States, but he is paid a little bit less. Uh, and, and so, you know, historically doctors have been against Medicare for all. And, and even now, you know, I mean, at least, you know, like, it's uh they're at the very least split down the middle on it uh and you know the hospitals and pharmaceutical companies you know they fucking hate it 
you know, they, 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 uh, they have like, they have made no bones about that, right? They don't think this is a big handout to the, them. They think that Medicare for all would be an all out assault to their profit margins because that's exactly what it would be, right? Like, yes, clearly Medicare for all would be very, very bad for their profits because, I mean, if you look at existing government healthcare programs, you know, uh, Medicare for seniors, you know, Medicaid, you know, uh, for uh, low-income people, like they pay out at lower rates than private insurance companies, and they could pay out at even lower rates if they were the only provider. I mean, when there's, you know, another way of saying Medicare for all is single-payer, you know, national health insurance. Uh, And yeah, if you have a single-payer for all the, you know, all of the sellers in this marketplace, you know, your your hospitals, you know, your uh, pharmaceutical companies that are selling goods and services, you have one payer. That payer has a hell of a lot of bargaining power to set prices wherever the hell he wants to set them. You know, it's the 800-pound, you know, gorilla, you know, sits where he wants. Um, so, of course, they hate this, Right. And this is silly on its face. It makes no sense if you think about it for two seconds that this would somehow, you know, nationalize the health insurance industry. Uh, so instead of, you know, getting to deal with a bunch of private companies um, that uh, that they they just have to, you know, they just have to eat whatever compensation rate the government gives them, uh, that that would somehow be a handout to the hospitals and pharmaceutical companies makes no sense, but it doesn't have to. All it has to do is just be a little placeholder so JD can um can both um you know can both like say, hey, I'm a good Republican, I'm against Medicare for all, and also uh, he can he can act like he's some sort of populist. Um the, you know, representing the little guy against the elites. And he does a lot of this kind of thing. So I mentioned a couple others in the article. Um, the, uh, you know, so he, you know, remember there he uh, he says uh, that uh, you know in the in the exchange with Tucker, Vance says uh, Republicans represent middle and working class wage earners. Obvious question: Does he want them to get paid more money? Uh, nope, nope. Uh, he does not. Uh, he is on record as uh, as being opposed to a $15 minimum wage um, that, you know, this was, um, this is also in USA Today, you know, said um, uh, proposals to raise the minimum wage $15 an hour, quote, might force a lot of employers to lay people off. Oh, they'll be forced to. And of course, you know, JD, the populist doesn't think, huh, is there anything that we might do to, uh, you know, to counteract that, you know, uh, as the, uh, as the government, uh, you know, like, could it, uh, could it be that, um, you know, like, for example, you know, corporations that, you know, lay people off um, after this, that they, uh, that, you know, cause they're forced to, you know, that they don't get government contracts anymore or, Hey, how about let's um, let's have federal jobs programs so that anybody who, lost uh their uh subliving wage job uh because they were laid off uh after uh after the fifteen dollar minimum wage was passed could then get uh a you know good 
unionized uh, public sector job that would definitely pay at least that much. How about that? Eh, guess not. Uh, so, uh, so no, he just takes exactly the standard William F. Buckley, Ronald Reagan kind of position. Uh, you know, of course he's, you know, he's putting just a little bit of effort into framing it as a matter of concern, you know, he, for, um, you know, as a matter of concern for the little guy as a good populist, uh, in the next sentence, of the USA Today piece, he says, well, um, you know, this would be bad for areas already devastated by job loss. But I mean, he's just doing, he's just saying what any Republican would say. Okay. Uh, my favorite example of JD coming up with, uh, quote, populist, unquote, reasons, uh, to oppose, uh, any sort of basic social democratic reform that would actually help the working class, uh, is, uh, is when, um, he said, uh, this was, uh, let me just get the exact date on, uh, on this, uh, cause this is an astonishing statement. I want to make sure I'm getting it accurate. Okay. So this is, uh, end of April last year. This is the quote, swear to God, I'm not making this up quote, universal daycare, unquote, is class war against normal people. Yes. Universal daycare. J.D. Vett says, Giving people daycare for free if they want it is class war against normal people. How does that work, you might ask? Hmm. Well, <laughs> here, is his, here is his impeccable reasoning. Uh, there is a poll that he cites that says that, you know, well, what the poll did is it asked people um, what child care arrangements would be best for their family uh, while they had children under the age of five. Uh, and then it broke down the results by percentage of people who gave each answer who had a college degree versus percentage of people who gave each answer who didn't have a college degree. Now, having a college degree is a very, very, very imperfect um, you know, surrogate for, for actually looking at like income level or you know, class position or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, fair enough. This is not like J.D. Vance doing this, that everybody does this, right? Because it's a much easier thing to, it's like one question. Just, you know, just be like, did you, you know, did you graduate from college? Yes or no. Uh, do you have a college degree? So that's a, that's a way easier. And I guess you don't want to say, did you go to college at all? Because somebody like took a couple of classes at, you know, their local junior college or something. Um, I guess for this purpose, that's not what you're interested in. So in any case, um so college graduate, not college graduates, one question. It's again, the, you know, there are tons of college graduates of the working class, but, um, but, you know, again, it's, it's, it's rough. It's not precise, but you know, it's, it's like an okay proxy for these economic things that they're really trying to get at. So fair enough. That's not my objection. Uh, here is my objection. So what is this, what is this, uh, polling number that, uh, Vance is citing to back up his claim that universal daycare would somehow be class war against normal people? Like that is a hell of a claim. What, what's, what's, what's the evidence look like, JD? You know, I'm going to break it down for me. Well, he gives this, uh, the screenshot from the poll result where, um, you know, the options they gave people, the childcare arrangements that would be best for your family. And by the way, I'm not 100% sure about this part, which is why I didn't include it in the article, but I'm really curious about whether um, 
there was anything the word in here that indicated whether, you know, like is best for your family means like, well, paid childcare might not be best because we couldn't afford it. Right. Whether there's something that was to, to rule that possibility out to say, no, no, no. If you could, if money were no issue, which one would be the best? And it doesn't look to me like the wording was if money were no issue. I think the wording was at least ambiguous enough to include, like, given that money is an issue, given, like, the current realities of this, because uh, the options were, like, one parent uh, working full time, the other staying home with the kid, uh, you know, both parents working part time and staying home part time with the kid, one parent working, you know, full time, the other working part time and, you know, using paid childcare. That was the phrase they used, paid childcare. Uh, part time and um, had stayed with the kid part time, etc. Right, that was the those were the options they gave. And the big the big breakdown is that um, uh, only um, uh, is that only thirty five percent of college graduates said that the arrangement they would like best, or you know, the arrangement that they thought would be best, however they interpreted that uh, for their family, would be one parent working full-time and the other stay, you know, being a stay-at-home parent. Uh, so that was only 35% of college graduates and it was 44% of non-college graduates. Now, don't get me wrong, 35 versus 44 is a statistically significant difference, but man, that is not a, like, that's what's supposed to justify this, like, grandiose inflammatory statement that, even giving people the option of free daycare is class war against normal people. That's what justifies that, that 35 to 44% uh, gap. That's, you know, pretty dumb, JD, pretty dumb. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so like the thing that I really want to underline about this though, actually, hold on just a second. Yeah. The thing that I really want to underline about this is that um, is that okay, look, I don't think the 44 to 35 difference, especially with the very ambiguously worded question, means what JD thinks it means, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, I, I, I actually think the idea that you you don't just have universal state daycare. I think that's class war against, uh, against, you know, low income people Um, that, uh, that this is that daycare is a commodity. It's something you have to pay for. It's not something you just get for being a person that, you know, so, you know, if you need somebody to take care of your kids, you know, that's like, of course, that's something society should provide, Um, you know? So obviously I think, you know, I mean, I don't think the numbers mean what he thinks they mean. Obviously, I think that uh, I think that universal daycare is uh, is something that you know, like just as as a matter of providing for basic rights, should absolutely be there. All that stuff, right? But uh, I do want to say, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be a stay at home parent. Like, I think that. You know, I mean, if you if you think, look, I really think it's better for the kid if you know if I you know if I stay at home with them, my spouse stays at home with them. I mean, obviously, I'd like to live in a society where there are no particular pressures in terms of gender for you know 
which what it is to, you know, like the, it could just be whatever works best for, you know, for everybody and whatever meets everybody's preferences, but there's nothing wrong with being a stay at home mom or dad. That is a, you know, that is a perfectly legitimate preference and a decent society that has the material capacity to do so should absolutely give people that option. But how's it going to do that? Right. I mean, like, yeah, I think it should also give them universal daycare, motherfucker. But, like, how's it going to do the, um, the give them that option? I mean, if you actually look closely at what uh, JD says, even in that Twitter thread that I was quoting from, the universal daycare is class war against normal people. If you look at what he says elsewhere in, uh, in that thread, um, you know, what he ends up, endorsing as a is a you know child allow like you know government child allowance proposal from uh, Josh Howley who's another of these guys who's supposed to be a big right wing populist, um, and he, you know, but if you actually look at that, you know, there was a you know I, I link in the article to uh, to a piece that uh, was at MSNBC that like breaks down some of these details, like. If you actually like look at that in any kind of depth, uh, it's very clear, like that uh, expanded child tax credit. Uh, that uh, you know, which I mean, that was basically a, a child allowance. Uh, you know, there was talk of making it permanent. It didn't happen, but you know, like just making the the Biden CTC permanent. Uh, would have actually been more generous than this Howley proposal that, you know, that, which was, you know, giving more restricted benefits, you know, with like more, you know, qualifications thrown in to even be able to get them in the first place. Um, and I think that says everything. I mean, this is the Biden CDC. Biden is, you know, I mean, look, if, if you say, oh, you know, um, J.D. Vance, Josh Howley, these guys are supposed to be these big populists. They're not like old Wall Street Republicans. They're, you know, they're champions of ordinary working class people left behind in the Rust Belt, blah, blah, blah. Look, is Biden a fiery populist champion of ordinary people left behind in the Rust Belt? Because last I checked, Biden was the, um, you know, Biden was the mainstreamiest of mainstream Democrats, the guy who the entire Democratic establishment consolidated behind to stop Bernie Sanders from winning the nomination, you know, so, you know, to, you know, to save corporate America from the grave dangers of Medicare for all uh, and a, uh, and a higher minimum wage and all the things that would have, uh, that you know, that a president Bernie would have at least pushed for. Um, so, so that's ridiculous. And also like, Look, I'm all for child allowances, but let's let's take a long step back here and think about this whole issue of stay-at-home parents. Because again, you know, I would like there to be a you know gender egalitarian society where nobody's pressured to make any decision one way or the other about this. But you know, if you want to be a stay-at-home parent, like if a couple like you know if if what they decide on is that one of them is going to stay home with the kids while the other works, that is totally legitimate. Again, decent society would give them a chance to do that. Okay, so what would that look like? Well, what did it fucking look like? You know, in the white picket fence era, right? You know, in the in the long post World War II boom. Uh, like, what did it look like in the state where JD Vance is running? You know, the one where he's always talking about being ravaged by post industrial devastation and the opioid epidemic and all of that. 
Ohio. You know, my mom's from Ohio. She grew up there when, you know, all the steel mills were there. Um, and, you know, Youngstown. Uh, so if you were an Ohio steel worker, you know, like in uh, like a, you know, baby boomer Ohio steel worker, uh, you could, in fact, have a decent life, give your family a decent life while your you know, wife, in that case, uh, stayed home with the kids. So single income, you could actually support a family in a decent way and have them have, you know, uh, you know, the chance of a better life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why? What was it that let them do that? What are child allowances? It was the fact it was the, it was the fucking United Steelworkers, right? It was these powerful industrial unions that won high enough wages and benefits that, uh, that people could have that decent life for their family and only one income. So where's JD on all that, right? Is he championing the PRO Act? I don't see that. I see some old statements from before he decided to run for the Senate where, um, you know, he was, you know, he was like, oh, you know, sectoral bargaining in European countries is interesting. You know, maybe that'd be okay if we did that. But if Bernie Sanders were proposing that and they were actually part of the American political discussion, JD would be fucking against it. Let's be real about this. Uh, again, he's certainly not talking about the PRO Act, right? Make it easier to organize unions. He's certainly not going around to unionize in Starbucks and uh, in Ohio on the campaign trail and lending his support to the workers because he's a Republican, because he's funded by Peter Thiel, this libertarian Silicon Valley billionaire. Uh, in the piece, I quote from something that Thiel wrote back in 2009 uh, for the Cato Institute, uh, you know, notoriously populist uh, venue there, the Cato Institute website. Uh where Thiel uh, castigates what he calls the unthinking demos of social democracy, right? The unthinking masses, you know, being allowed to, you know, make economic policies that get you, you know, social democracy. Uh, he talks about how defenders of free markets, uh, you know, have, um, you know, are, are really in trouble and have been since the 1920s. He said the last time it was possible to be optimistic about politics is the 1920s, you know, the notoriously the era of populist legislation, right? The 1920s. Uh, here's the quote from the Peter Thiel article from 2009. Since the 1920s, the vast increase in welfare beneficiaries, the extension of the franchise to women, two constituencies that are notoriously tough for libertarians. I love that little aside. Yeah, we seem to have trouble with poor people and women. Huh. Uh, have rendered the notion of capitalist democracy into an oxymoron. Now, Capitalist democracy is an oxymoron. It's the kind of thing I might say. But, uh, you know, the nerdy little logic joke here is one man's modus, uh, modus ponens is another man's modus tollens. Modus ponens is where you say if A, then B, and A is true, so therefore B must be true too. Modus tollens is if A, then B, but B isn't true, so therefore A isn't true either. Like, this, uh, you know, capitalist democracy being an oxymoron, you know, uh, leads Teal to give up hope explicitly in this article on democracy. Now, he doesn't support um, the, um, uh, he doesn't, you know, support in this, in this article, he doesn't support having an American Augustus to start a monarchy like his, his buddy Curtis Yarvin, that'd be Mencius Mulbug. Um, he doesn't say that in this article from 2009 on the Cato Institute website. What he says is, well, 
you know, we need to look to these frontiers that allow us to escape from the effects of mass democracy, this unthinking demos of social democracy. Uh, there's something about cyberspace. There's something about uh, seasteading, which is the idea that you could start, uh, like, um, you could you could colonize the ocean floor, basically, you know, like a la Sea Lab 2021. And the last one is, is space exploration, right? So that's where Teal is in 2009. He wants to start anarcho-capitalist colonies on Mars or on the ocean floor. Uh, because he's he's given up on on mass democracy. Fast forward to 2022, he's spending 15 million dollars uh, elected JD Vance. Uh, you know, at least securing him the nomination. We'll see how much he gives him for the general election uh, to uh, to set it in Ohio. So that's certainly a reversal on the question of is there a way forward for you know politics? You know, do we have to just escape from this you know this planet and earthly politics entirely? You know, in favor of uh, of of having free markets on you know in outer space or on the ocean floor? But is it really a reversal on the basic policy preferences? Ah, gotta say, I'm a lot more skeptical. I think that he knows exactly what he's getting when he buys. Uh, when he buys this the Senate seat, uh, I, there's a there's a quote that that's just that's just incredible that I had um, that I I was I regretted so much that you know that I wasn't able to include this in the article itself. There was just no good way to fit it, you know, fit it in, you know, to naturally insert it. Um, but there's this 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 interview that uh, I believe last year that uh, that Vance did uh, where. In, um, here we go. Here's the line. So Taylor is the interviewer says, Taylor, President Biden's Build Back Better Act has been stalled in the Senate. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. And I know you're against it. JD, thank God for Joe Manchin. Man, that sounds like a populist right there. Thank God for Joe Manchin, JD says. Taylor, what do you say to people who look at some of the provisions? It's a huge package, but they look at components like paid family leave, universal pre-K, more money for elderly care, the expanded child tax credit, and they say, JD, that would help me and my family. It has helped me and my family. How can you be against those? What do you say? Good question for a populist. JD, well, first is, we can't spend money that we don't have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Spoken like a anti-corporate populist who's really standing up for, for the, all of those forgotten people. You know, in uh, the you know deindustrialized opioid epidemic ravaged, uh, you know parts of Ohio that he is claiming to speak for. It's it is a fucking bad joke. All right, we have a few callers, so let me try to get to at least a couple of them, or you know, possibly all of them. See how it goes. Hey, Ben, how you doing? All right, Chase, what's on your mind? Hey, how you doing, Ben? Good, how are you? Um, yeah, so uh, first off, um, Peter Thiel's plan to build, um, uh, you know, uh, Atlantis at the bottom of the ocean for libertarians is literally the plot of the first Bioshock game. <laughs> I had no idea that he, uh, he had <laughs> such plans, but if you've never played them, you'd probably be entertained because um, uh, it, so, it, it has such a... Um, uh, uh, a resonance there. Um, 
So my brother once said a dictum to me, which is that for conservatives, capitalism is just whatever lets white people succeed. Um, and like, <laughs> they're understandable. And um, I think there's that element here. Like, I don't think, uh, I guess the way, the way in which that Vance will get seen as a proper populist to these people is that the way they define populist is like based entirely in sort of, uh, like a defensiveness over culture, you know, and like culture war fights. But I, I don't think you can like uh, discount the degree at which the family, sort of capital F family, uh, plays like a, a an organizing role in how they think about this. Um, so like, I mean, you're uh, right, I think, to point out that like in the, say, the 1950s or 60s when the, uh, in the heyday, of the nuclear family in American history, you know, that kind of cultural conservatism was built on a, a on a backdrop of Keynesian economic liberalism and right. that, you know, these people aren't offering any of that. But I, I really think they think the causality is kind of backwards that if they're able to just, uh, you know, revive the values, what they think were the values that held the nuclear family together, um, like all the other pieces will fall into play. Like, you know, the, uh-huh. you know, there'll be like a whiskey spring and, uh, and that like suddenly the single, uh, male wage, bread, breadwinning age for a wage for a whole family will return. Um, uh-huh. and that, you know, like if we can just return to a godly way of life, the society will be, you know, blessed again. And I really, I really think they, um, they kind of have that uh, that vision, um, and I mean, I don't know what to do about that, honestly. If that's the case, I mean, do you do you? I guess, what are your thoughts on what I just said? Yeah, I mean, I think that the I, I think that you're right. I mean, that since that kind of um, you know, I mean, like the only thing that's populist about it is you say, well, there's a sort of uh, cultural narrative that's populist that it's uh, that uh, that you're defending the the values of ordinary people against the values of coastal elites. But of course, in that sense, and if you want to play that game, I mean, the you know, like Reagan and Buckley were populist too because they used exactly the same cultural rhetoric. So I think you're you know, I think how to how to counteract it is a very big question. I mean, doing stuff like this is my attempt at contributing to counteract it. But um, but I do. Um, uh, but but yeah, I mean, I think that's very perceptive. I mean, I think there's a kind of like you know, it's like a kind of cargo cult populism that the uh, that if you just sort of like mimic the uh, the symptoms of uh of of keynesian economics and strong unions you know then uh you know like if you if you sort of mimic the the cultural uh epiphenomena that were like allowed to exist because of that then the thing itself will will sort of magically appear and, and i think that's i think that's exactly the right way to think about it but i want to go to the next caller antonio what's in your mind Antonio, you with us? All right, I cannot hear you. I don't know what's up with that. But uh, if you f- figure it out um, and and put yourself, 
you know, back in line. I will take you then. Uh, but I guess for now, I will go to the next caller. Hey, Ben, can you hear me all right? I can. It's on your mind. Okay, cool. Yeah, so a lot of what I was going to say was actually kind of relating to the last caller. I feel like we're seeing this change in what populism is focusing on, being more focused around the cultural type of populism. And, you know, me being from rural Southern America, I will say that just anecdotally, a lot of people that I'll, that I'll speak to, they would probably be willing to vote for somebody who supported economic populist ideas, but the cultural, like this now new right-wing cultural populism is like a must-have for, for them in order to gain support. And what really worries me is a lot of, you know, supposed left populists that, that are out here, you know, the, the likes that like to go on Tucker Carlson and just hold hands uh, yeah. and whine about wokeness and everything, they they are starting to cater to those people as well on cultural populism. And, and it seems to me like it looks like uh, because the Democrats are not cultural or uh, left-wing populist in any way, I see that in the Republicans, they're starting to move towards more cultural populism. I see a lot of these fake left-wing populists starting to compromise their economic populism to support a right-wing cultural populist who's just a corporatist on economic policies. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I know, I know what you're saying for sure. I mean, I think that there is a way that, um, like, people who, for one reason or another, uh, like, have convinced themselves that, like, right-wing economic populism must be a thing, right? That so, like, in the article, I quote, Sora Bamari is one of the founders of Compact Magazine, who I think is, I mean, he's like a conservative, but like, I think he really means it on the economic stuff. And so he, he, I think he really wants to believe that there are politicians who also really mean it, which there are not. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and then like, you could even have, and like, yeah, then like, I think there are people who maybe are more left, uh, but for whatever reason, they've convinced themselves that there's this like opening for some sort of grand, like left, right populist alliance. And, uh, mm-hmm. And so they, and and I think in both cases, right, whether you're like the Sorab type or or whether you're like the more left version, like if you believe this, like after a while, you know, you just kind of start like making excuses or telling yourself some story about how, you know, your J.D. Vance's and Josh Howley's are are better than they look, right? You know that they if, if they have a. You know, oh well. If you look really, if you know, if you squint at just the right angle, you can see there's some like antitrust stuff there somewhere. It's like it's like this incredibly thin mm-hmm. rule, right? You know, but I mean, like that—that's what they have kind of have to rely on. I also think there's a danger here that I mean, might be some of what you're talking about, where I think people who so I think it's complicated because it is true that I think like a lot of leftists like seem to be um, like a lot of leftists really are too concerned with sort of like making sure everybody has exactly the right cultural sensibilities and like, mm-hmm. you know, they present themselves in ways that really are like super alienated and unhelpful, you know, but, uh, but like the flip side of it is that I think especially a lot of people who are in media 
it's I think it's really easy to just sort of get caught up in like and this is gonna sound simplistic, but I think it's true, just like whoever annoys you like on Twitter and in media is like is like everything sort of becomes about like sticking it to those people, you know. So like if you mm-hmm. can uh so I think I think enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So it's like so you find like some like I don't know like uh like kind of vapid ultra woke liberals like really annoyed and fair enough who could blame you but then like you know but then you then you sort of combine that with this like well you know I, you know there's some you know this man to trust stuff and like maybe you know at least they don't want to at least they don't want to like escalate in Ukraine or whatever and like you know you you come up with like your two or three data points that you could do to convince mm-hmm. yourself that there's something there with these right wing uh, politicians and before you know it like you are actually like making excuses for what is ultimately a uh, a cultural yeah this this is ultimately just right wing culture war. Um, yeah. And just the the last thing, uh, last point I want to make about that is, uh, I I don't believe at all JD Vance or any of these right wing cultural populists. They're not doing it because of principle. They're simply doing it because they feel like Western white values are under attack, and that's why they're starting to try to like. And they're trying to use the idea of like freedom and like free speech and everything for like all these principles. I mean, like some of the solutions, like we may have some common ground on, but. If this was, um, if, if any of like the, the, the censorship or the, the cultural trends they felt like were, um, you know, if they felt like it wasn't against white Western culture, they wouldn't care about it at all. I don't believe that for a second. Yeah, I think, I think it is. I mean, look, I, I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, I think that the right wing not being, you know, not being trustworthy friends of free speech. I think that that's a hundred percent right. I mean, like, I think you just have to look at the, um, at some of the laws that these very people have supported around the country. Look at J.D. Vance on his campaign website. He talks about cutting all of the funding from any universities that teach critical race theory. I mean, that's, that's not a, that doesn't sound very free speechy to me, but uh, in any case, um, you know, which I mean, the left should be, principled about defending free speech even you know for everybody but you know i don't expect these people to uh casey what's on your mind hey ben uh i appreciate you spending some time on on jd vance um i live in ohio uh in the northern part and um yeah it's it's coming down to the wire i'm you know a little bit excited but mostly nervous about the general election um which you referenced uh, earlier um, and specifically around, I feel like JD's opponent here, um, Tim Ryan, is perfectly engineered to um, not use any of those arguments that you had <laughs> brought up during, you know, um, he's just kind of a, a centrist, you know, um, there's, a, there's a big uh, flavor of um, Democrat in, in Ohio that's like, oh, you know, we're... We're not, you know, those crazy lefties, but, you know, we're like, we're common sense kind of, um, you know, uh, we, we make common sense issues. And just a little bit about the way that Tim Ryan's been running his campaign so far is, you know, I get all of his, all the attack ads and stuff. And, and essentially, Tim Ryan is going really hard on blaming all of Ohio's, you know, the, the NAFTA stuff and, and 
and all of the you know the devastation of the uh, United Steelworks is um, basically just blaming it on on China out competing us and and his messaging is kind of around you know we just got to work harder than China guys like you know his <laughs> ads are just him yelling at workers to work harder and um, I don't know I was looking at his campaign website there's some things on it like oh you know request Troex we'll do fifteen dollars which I can mean you know he could say that but I just have no faith um, in him saying that so uh, just just wondering if you had looked at yeah a, a little bit um uh, so I, i'm not you know i mean i've done like a super deep dive on, on tim ryan um in a little bit obviously i was like doing the article about vans but i mean i guess it seems like kind of a mixed bag like uh like i i do think that he could be a I do think that as a Democrat running against fans, like I do think Ryan could be a lot worse. Uh, like he's not, um, you know, I mean like the, I think that he's saying like some of the right things, like, you know, about sort of being dismissive about, you know, distractions about CRT and stuff like that. And like kind of, having some kind of emphasis on, on economics, but, uh, but also, um, but, but I do, I do share your sense that like, whatever he's got to say about that is also like kind of shallow. Right. You know, so like, he's, he's probably not going to like, it's, he, I don't think he's, I guess my impression of him, and I mean, you, you would know better than I would, but I mean, my impression of him is like, on the one hand, I don't think that he's the kind of like, I don't know, Pete Buttigieg, Terry McAuliffe kind of Democrat who would just be like the ideal punching bag for Vance. But on the other hand, um, I don't know how much he's really going to go into the sort of like policy stuff that much because, you know, in terms of like kind of exposing the the shallowness of, of uh, you know, Vance's claim to care about working class people because, you know, with maybe some exceptions like the PRO Act and et cetera, like it doesn't seem like he's all that amazing on the policy stuff either. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, you said a mixed bag. Like, yeah, on one hand, he's talking about the PRO Act. On the other hand, he, you know, he wrote an entire book about the mindfulness meditation. <laughs> was, my older brother in college, he was, it was like assigned reading for some class, but um, yeah, he said it was complete and utter uh, drivel there. So, I don't know. You know, yeah i mean that's not great like like i would i would have i would <laughs> i think i would prefer to have somebody who uh uh who wasn't uh you know a um uh like yeah i i i think i think i would uh i think i would prefer that uh you know i think i would prefer to have like a uh have somebody who is uh, who is not uh, who is not the author of a mindfulness book as the uh, as the candidate against Vance. So yeah, I mean we'll see. Like I said, I I think he's just like a very mixed bag. I think there are like some things about him like that that do make him seem like oh god, this is just like sort of peak Democrat. And then there are other things, um, you know, there are other things that are like a little bit better and more promising. Like I don't think he's I mean he's clearly not like a birdie crat or anything, but like he's um 
you know, but I do think that like, uh, I don't know, democratic, you know, uh, democratic candidates get a lot worse than him too. So, I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, I know right now it doesn't look good. Like right now it, it, it seems like, you know, I mean, Democrats have not won a lot of statewide races in Ohio, uh, in, uh, in, you know, the last several years and, you know, and, and Ryan's, um, you know, I mean, like Ryan's coming into it as an underdog and, and, you know, I mean, my sense of it so far is, is that I would not bet on him pulling it off, but, you know, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. All right. I appreciate the call. All right. Thanks, man. All right, second attempt. Antonio, are you there? Uh, can you hear me now? I can. Excellent. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it isn't really relevant, and I will say that, as you said, you know, uh, I think that uh, Tim Ryan does have a lot of points over other Democrats, especially uh, he's one of the few that will actually talk about labor. But I do think it's funny to hear him, you know, yelling about China, you know, given the T-shirts and bumper stickers he wrote after telling or he sold after telling <laughs> Bernie Sanders you don't have to yell but yeah, 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 yeah. anyways um, I, I was wondering because it always seems to me like the uh, only reason Republicans or the right generally can pull off this sort of uh, I, I don't even really want to call it populism but like anti-elitism where you uh, ex- you find people expressing dissatisfaction at the superstructures of capitalism whenever there's, you know, redirect things along those lines and it turns into cultural lines instead of, you know, the actual failures of capitalism that are causing them the unhappiness. And I'm wondering, it always seems like the only reason that's actually possible is because the uh, Democrats constantly seem to be moving the discussion into more and more abstract spaces to this point. It seems like they, they don't have any concrete policy proposals and are existing entirely symbolically in the space of defending CRT and things like that. So I was wondering, you know, if one yeah. think this might create room for a third party or two, you know, what we do about the fact that it seems like the main reaction to the Democrats fecklessness is that people just, you know, from uh, leave politics stage left. Yeah. Uh, great question. So, uh, so I, on the symbolism part, I completely agree. Uh, I wrote an article for Art Digital Media in 2020 called Overdosing on Symbolism that, uh, that, that gets into a lot of this stuff. And, and yeah, I mean, look, this is the, this is the party that, you know, I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer kneeled in kente cloth. That happened. Uh, you know, they, uh, but, uh, but they've, they've also, you know, like they, they, they couldn't even get it together to, uh, to pass a $15 minimum wage. They, they said, uh, you know, they, well, they tried to do it through reconciliation, but, you know, the Senate parliamentarian said no, and they're powerless before the non-monding recommendations of a staffer, uh, who, uh, who they could literally fire at any time. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly with you on all that on the third party question. I think that's a little bit trickier for me just because uh, I, I I think that like 
the sort of peculiarities of America's electoral system really do make it very, very hard for uh, like a a viable third ballot line to to get going, right? I mean, there's a reason it hasn't happened in either direction or you know any direction uh, since the you know I mean since like eighteen you know. 1860, right? You know, which is which is when, uh, or I mean, before that, you know. But I mean, that's when the uh, that's that's when somebody you could call a, uh, a third party candidate has since you know one, you know, when the third party was the Republicans, uh, and and I guess if you look at the history there, I mean, that still seems like the most realistically imaginable way that you could get a viable new party electorally would be that it would be something like the emergence of the Republicans from the anti-slavery wing of the Whig party that, you know, you essentially had a major party that collapsed and out of that collapse, like you get a new one. I, 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 I think I have a really hard time imagining like an electorally viable third ballot line, like coming about in the United States, any other, any way other than that. Right. Which is kind of why I agree with, uh, so Jared Abbott and, uh, Dustin Gostella, uh, wrote this article for Jacobin, whose name I do not remember, um, a couple of years ago, where they they sort of said, okay, there's this kind of debate that happens to the left about like, do you try to take over the Democratic Party or do you try to, uh, uh, you know, create a third party? And and they said, well, this is kind of a confused debate because these aren't actually different strategies, right? The what these are, you know, the idea, you know, like. Um, at least if you go with the sort of scenario that I was talking about for a, the creation of a third party, which is what's sometimes called like a dirty break as opposed to a clean break, right? A clean break would just be like, we're announcing the formation of the, you know, new American socialist party tomorrow. And, you know, and we'll, we'll start collecting signatures to get it on the ballot and, you know, and see what happens, which I think it's the kind of thing that the American left has tried many, 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 many times. And like, it, it never goes anywhere. But like a dirty break would be like it somehow emerges from the Democratic Party. There's this sort of like break within the Democratic Party that creates a new party. And so they said, well, a dirty break versus taking over the Democratic Party, uh, their argument was that's not really – those aren't really two different strategies. Those are really two different outcomes of the same strategy, which is to like build up whatever kind of you know Bernie Sanders-ish social democratic forces exist within the uh, Democratic Party because those are you know if you did have a new party those are all the people that would be in it. I mean, like it, in a way, I kind of I always think about that scene in um, uh, Jerry Maguire, you know, where he's leaving the, you know, like he's he's being fired or whatever from uh, the uh, the company he used to work at. He's like, all right, who's with me? And you know, it's like crickets. You know, like I, there's this kind of collective action problem with like trying to get people to, because uh, you know there's always a there's always like there's always another election coming, and there's it's always like you know if you have a party with no realistic chances of going anywhere, it's always really hard to make the case that like you should just live with you know you should just live with the outcomes of the the even worse one winning, and you know. Anyway, I, I think it's like I mean I think the American system is like very intentionally set up to make it hard, you know, for third parties to operate. But I also think like the Democrats and Republicans aren't really parties in the European sense or like the Latin American sense anyway. I mean I think that, you know, like there's no such thing as being like a member of the Democratic Party or a member of the Republican Party. They're they're battle lines. And 
you know, those the Democratic ballot line is is controlled by the Democratic machine, you know, but I, I think that the real, you know, whether there's one day in the future where there's like a separate left ballot line or or whatever. I mean, like, I, I think the real issue is not so much the ballot line as the as the mechanism, you know, the, the you know, as, as having some kind of machine that's, you know, that can have, um, that can support candidates, that can hold, like, you know, if you have some situation like, uh, you know, this the sort of disappointments that people might have had with AOC or Jamal Bowman or whatever, that you, you have some sort of mechanism where you can meaningfully hold people to account in ways that they would care about. Like, oh, you have this machine that, like, I really rely on to knock on doors for me. And so if they endorse a challenger in the next primary, that's going to be a real problem. You know, that's going to be a real problem for me. Like, I think that's the sort of, like, you know, I guess I guess my worry is that I think sometimes we fixate too much on on the left, on, on like, voting, which is, like, the last thing that happens at the end of a process is you actually go out of the ballot box and vote. Uh, because it's like the thing that we can control, right? Like right now, like, you know, this fall, whatever, you know, you, you and I could like make individual voting decisions. That's something that's like in our hands. So, you know, like it makes sense to kind of get excited about it and, and to sort of, um, put a lot into like how we're going to vote when we do it. But I think the real question is just like, do we have a powerful enough left that it can, you know, that it can, um, it can like sort of, have a meaningful impact on the steps leading up to that on the, you know, on, you know, getting candidates, you know, who, uh, who are aligned with us to, to be in a position where they have a real shot at winning an election, which right now usually means winning a democratic nomination. Maybe someday it wouldn't mean that. Do we have a mechanism for holding them to account, you know, when they get out of line, like all of that stuff, I think those are the real questions, and 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 like I know that's kind of a depressing answer because it's like it's much harder to do anything about that because like you just need more people doing more stuff in the long term. But I mean, like you know, I mean, this is, I mean, I think this is, you know, I, I think for one thing, I think we need a rebuilt labor movement, or else you're just not going to get the ground troops. <laughs> you know, sorry, what were you saying? Oh yeah, oh no, I'm just uh, unmuting myself in case because I thought something, it was leading yeah, yeah. in a certain direction. But I mean, I would agree with you. I mean, it was one of the reasons I think Syriza was such a disappointment in in Greece or Podemos in Spain, just like you had all of these, you, you, when you don't have a system to hold them to account, even if they managed to miraculously win an election, they end up only feeling rightward pressure. And, it, and yeah, this is, this would be depressing if it weren't, you know, the reality that is enforced onto us all this time. I mean, it's just mainly the fact that we are so much further than we would like to be from actual power. That's really depressing. Though I think we probably would all agree that yeah, we we know the uh, labor movements are a precondition to actually moving, building anything. Which is why it is good that there is some high-profile labor stuff going on right now because I think it gives like rather than just kind of stewing and being depressed about the balance of, uh, of forces, you know that. Like it, it kind of gives people something real that they can they can focus on. I mean, like I like I love the Starbucks thing, even though I realize that like it's you know I mean statistically it's like whatever. I mean, there are like a lot of these stores have like ten people who work at them, but um, but what I like about it is that it's visible, it's high profile. There's Starbucks everywhere, you know. You 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 can kind of get this like. Um, this sort of positive drip, drip, drip of good news, you know, like it's, uh, 
you know, and, 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 you know, and I mean, the power of good example, I mean, I think it, I think it spreads. I mean, that, I think that's something that's like sort of useful that people can actually like focus their, their energy on that at least like sort of points in the direction of, uh, the points in the direction of what we need. Right. Cause, um, cause I mean, I, I mean, I think this is like, you know, socialism 101. I mean, if you don't, you know, like if you don't have a, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't have an organized working class, you know, I mean, like all you can do is kind of talk about what you want, you know, like there's, there's no way to, uh, there's no way to actually get it. So, I mean, I think anything that, or like the Amazon stuff, even though the second warehouse vote was, you know, failed, right. You know, like it, it's still, um, you know, the first one, you know, 50, 50 is pretty good for that. Right. You know, so, uh, for this like tiny independent union. So, Again, I mean, I think that there are positive developments going on here. You can, you know, you can, um, you know, you can kind of like focus your energy on and, you know, while sort of seeing like long term what we would like. And yeah, I love the point about Sirius and Podemos, you know, because uh, Podemos, because that's, I think that also goes to goes to a point that I think Americans often miss, and I've included myself in that critique, which is that like it's not. You know, like we we fixate so much on the party question because in America there are all of these structural obstacles that have been set up very intentionally to uh, uh, to to third parties. So so we we sort of connect the dots and say, oh, see, the right right there, there's our problem. But then if you think about the problem with you know, like again, you know, any disappointments people might have, AOC, Jamal Bowman, whatever. It's not like you don't get parallels all over the world in parliamentary systems where, um, you know, like the equivalence of the squad or whatever would just be a third party. Like you, you absolutely do get equivalents because there are larger, uh, you know, there are larger like forces at, at, at work there. I mean, this kind of like, um, you know, right we're moving pressure on, you know, on, on left politicians, you know, is, is something that, I mean, look, the, you know, like Britain had a, you know, a, a nominally socialist party uh, based on the organized working class. And, and it was in the same era that Bill Clinton came up in the U.S., you know, Tony Blair came up there, right? I mean, that this is like, I think there are some larger trends in global capitalism there. Um, but but I think that the, you know, I, I think that the solutions um, – you know, I think the bigger solutions are about like having a you know militant workers movement that can, you know, that can intervene and and you know and and that can that can has mechanisms to hold elected to. Probably going to cut it off there for uh, for today. This is a really good discussion. Thank you, thank you, everybody who uh, who called in today, and uh, yeah, left is best. <laughs>